This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for October 17th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we start with some online news stories, and then we hear from Adam Ford on the complex relationship between plants, their herbivores, and their predators. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Now we have David Grimm back on the show. He's the editor for our daily news site, and he's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on where to put all the greenhouse gases we keep making. Despite decades of negotiations and regulations, it doesn't look like we humans are going to stop making greenhouse gases anytime soon. One longstanding idea has been to capture CO2 and put it underground. Where might one store tons and tons of this stuff, Dave? Well, Sarah, you might store it in something called a saline aquifer. And this is essentially a water-bearing underground rock layer. And what happens is you pump the CO2 down there. It not only gets trapped in the rock, but it also can dissolve in the water where it interacts with other elements, becomes a mineral, and essentially gets trapped underground forever. Wouldn't the gas leak out from under the ground if there was still the gaseous form of it there? Well, that was one of the big questions in the study. There's a new power plant in Canada called the Boundary Dam Power Plant. And one of the things it's doing is it's storing this excess carbon dioxide. It's pumping it underground into these saline aquifers. But the question, as you raise, Sarah, is how much of it is really staying down there and for how long is it staying down there? And the hope is that the CO2 being captured from this power plant will dissolve in the water underground and mineralize. And so the next question is, how long does it take to mineralize carbon dioxide that you pump underground? What kind of estimates do we have for that? Well, what the researchers did is they took a look at something called the Bravo Dome, which is the world's largest carbon dioxide reservoir. It's located in New Mexico. And what happened here is there were ancient volcanic activities that pumped carbon dioxide into these saline aquifers 700 meters deep underground. Since the 1980s, oil companies have drilled hundreds of wells there. And so there's a wealth of data about just what's trapped there and approximately how long it's been there for. So this is a really long timeline. How 
long has the gas been down there? How much of it is mineralized? What do we know about it? Well, the researchers did a lot of work, and they estimated that as much as 1.6 gigatons of carbon dioxide gas are trapped under a Bravo dome. And after about 1.2 million years, only about a fifth of it has dissolved into the water of the saline aquifers there. Does that mean that we shouldn't rely on captured CO2 to dissolve and then mineralize into rock? Well, I think the take-home point here is, first of all, that when you get all this gas trapped underground, it is effectively trapped, and the researchers show it can be trapped there for a very, very long time. Ideally, you want it to mineralize so it's trapped forever because there's a concern when if it's still in the gas form that some of it may leak out into the atmosphere. But what this says is we can't rely on mineralization to be the most important component of this carbon capture strategy. Next up, we have a story on the smells that flies like. This next finding has its roots in a happy lab accident, everyone's preferred kind of lab accident. What happened, Dave? This was a geneticist at a university in Belgium, and he was working with two types of yeast, a normal strain and another strain with a mutation in a gene called ATF1 that causes the yeast to produce fewer odors during fermentation. He left the lab one weekend, but when he returned on Monday, he realized that he had accidentally left the yeast out over the weekend. And lo and behold, a bunch of fruit flies were congregating around the yeast, but only the normal yeast. There were no flies around the mutant yeast. And in order to see this preference in action, because of course they're scientists, they want to know why flies like smelly yeast, they set up an arena of smells. What did they learn from that experiment? Well, they wanted to know what exactly about the yeast is attracting the flies. And what they found was, indeed, this mutation in the ATF1 gene prevents the yeast from emitting uh, sort of the odor of rotten fruit. And this is something flies as decomposers are attracted to. And so not only were the flies attracted to it, but the researchers actually saw that neurons in the flies exposed to the smelly yeast had a a very different activation pattern than those that were exposed to the non-smelly yeast. I guess it's probably not a big surprise for everyone that fruit flies like smelly things, particularly things that smell like rotten fruit. What do the yeast get out of it? Why do they smell like rotten fruit? Well, the researcher has some intriguing speculation here. He found, first of all, that yeast cells were actually capable of sticking to the tiny hairs on the fruit flies' appendages. And what's more, the yeast seemed to emit much more of this rotten fruit odor when their numbers were sort of getting out of control, when things were getting really crowded for the yeast. And so he speculates that this is sort of almost like a SOS signal that yeast send out. The flies come in, attracted to the odor. The yeast latch onto the flies. The flies fly somewhere else, maybe a much less yeast-populated area, and the yeast get to start a new population from there. So this almost sounds like pollinating new yeast colonies, but on a totally different scale than we usually think about pollination. (laughs) How else can uh, yeast-insect communication be applied? Well, you know, the yeast, the the scent that the yeast emit, and we know yeast is involved in the creation of beers. Maybe this is something that can be harnessed to create better beers and even wines. Probably a little far in the future for right now. Everybody just seems amazed by this symbiotic relationship between a single-celled animal and an insect. Lastly, we have a story on the not-so-dead moon. 20 million years ago, our primate ancestors might have looked up at a volcanically active moon. And it's possible that we may someday get to do the same. So Dave, 
What do we know about volcanoes on the moon prior to this most recent thing we're not going to talk about yet? <laughs> well, the moon has sort of long been speculated to be this sort of cold, dead place where you don't see much activity at all, including geologic activity. So it's even surprising to be talking about possible active volcanoes on the moon. We do know that there have been some unusual structures on the moon. There was a, a structure called Ina that uh, has intrigued scientists for decades. In 2006, researchers found evidence that it was a volcanic event that was active as recently as 10 million years ago, but they thought this was sort of a, an anomaly. And in the new study, the researchers used the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is orbiting the moon since 2009, and they found that 70 structures, not just Ina, but there were 70 structures that appeared to be lava flows, ranging in size from about 100 meters to 6,000 meters across. That is a lot of extra volcanoes. And how old do they think these lava flows or these volcanoes were? Well, because it's the moon and the researchers can actually calculate based on the impacts of the moon how old something is, they speculate that these are several million years old. There's one that resides in a depression near the western edge of the Sea of Tranquility that's about 18 million years old. This is all on the near side of the moon or the light side of the moon. Is the dark side of the moon going to yield similar volcanic results? Well, the near side of the moon is actually a couple hundred degrees warmer than the far side of the moon. And so you'd be more likely probably to see volcanic activity here if you're going to see it anywhere. What's still unclear is whether tens of millions of years ago somebody would have witnessed the last gasps of volcanic activity on the moon, as one researcher said, the body is still warm and you might see a few twitches from time to time, or whether we will indeed see more volcanic eruptions, probably not in our lifetimes, but maybe several years hence. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about using fiber optic cables to measure Arctic temperatures. Another story about a possible ocean on Saturn's moon, Mimas. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got an update on paper-selling controversy in China. It turns out that a lot of paper authorships are still being sold there. Also, continuing coverage on Ebola and our analysis of what some of the most recent developments in Ebola mean for people and the scientific community. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Most hungry carnivores wouldn't look twice at a green leafy plant, but carnivores do prey on herbivores, which in turn eat plants. The question is, how much influence does the presence and behavior of predators and their herbivorous prey have on plant distribution? To put it simply, do leopards affect the trees? I spoke with Adam Ford about his group's examination of this question in the East African savanna using impalas, wild dogs, and acacia trees. Carnivores, like leopards and wild dogs, shape where herbivores eat. Plant offenses, such as thorns, shape what herbivores eat. And together, carnivores and plant defenses interact to change the impact of herbivores across the landscape. And as a result, large carnivores made this savanna tree community less thorny. Okay. So let's start with kind of the bigger question that you're examining here, which is why are there so many plants all around us when there are so many animals that like to eat those plants? What are some of the theories for the survival of plants despite their odds? There's sort of 
two big ideas that scientists have been chatting about for at least 50 years. One is the green world hypothesis. And this hypothesis argues that plants are abundant in nature because carnivores eat herbivores, so there are fewer herbivores to eat plants. A modern twist on this idea is that carnivores also change where or how much herbivores eat, even if they don't kill them outright. The other idea is the plant defense hypothesis, which argues that thorns, spines, and noxious chemicals can protect plants even in the face of intense herbivory. There's widespread evidence to support both hypotheses, and our study tried to bring these ideas together to understand how one food web works. And you looked at a setting that had at least thorns as well as herbivory and predators. Our research took place at Impala Research Center in Lankipia, Kenya. This area is about 100 kilometers north of the equator, and it's a savanna ecosystem, which means there's a mixture of trees and grasses. It's neither enough grass to be a grassland nor enough trees to be a forest. It's also a human-occupied landscape, and traditional ranching practices really dominate land use. There's no formal protected areas in Lycipia. The animal community in Lycipia consists of three ungulate species. There's Dictic, which is about 5 kilograms, Impala, which is about 50 kilograms, and elephants. And our study focused on impala. Impala are also eaten by wild dogs and leopards, both of which are common in our study area. And impala eat two common species of acacia tree, one that is thorny and one that isn't very thorny. So those are the players. We have the impala, the predators that eat the impala, and what the impala eat. And your research actually used a very interesting mix of techniques to look at the relationships between these organisms. Can you describe a few of your approaches? Well, in food webs involving smaller species like insects and spiders, scientists can often control the number of individuals and the complexity of the food chain and then watch how they interact. But it's a little tricky to investigate the ecology of large mammals. They move over large areas, they live for a long time, there aren't very many of them, and they're very big, and this makes experiments very difficult. We tried these experiments to isolate a few of the more important interactions between these species, and then to look to see if these experimental results scaled up to the broader landscape. Mm -hmm. So in one case, we used a feeding experiment to see how well thorns protected trees from impala. We did this by removing thorns from a thorny tree species and then adding thorns to a less thorny species, and then comparing how many leaves were eaten by impala from each of these different trees. And from this, we determined that impala diet preferences is really determined by thorns rather than other properties like the nutritional or chemical content of leaves. And how did you present the leaves to them, these doctored leaves? We cut branches from each of these these tree treatments and put them in the ground in areas where we knew impala would encounter them. And then you also looked at this from a very, very distant vantage from the satellite? Yeah, we used satellites in two interesting ways. First, we tracked the movements of impala, leopards, and wild dogs using GPS collars, which, as many people know, uses satellites to measure the location of these animals on the Earth. We then overlaid these tracking data with a map of tree cover. And this map was built from a satellite image, and that satellite is known as a QuickBird. This QuickBird satellite has a high enough resolution that we can map the location of individual trees and shrubs. From this, we get a very clear picture of how impala and their predators perceive the landscape. Namely, that impala avoid areas with a lot of trees and that predators prefer to hunt in areas with more trees. The last method I thought we could talk about was how you looked at different fences to exclude different herbivores. Can you talk about that? Yeah, we used a series of exclosure fences to determine how impala impacts the tree community. So in tropical biomes like our study area, there's often a lot of species eating the same food. 
at least compared to most landscapes in North America. So in our area, the other abundant tree eaters are either smaller or bigger than impala. We counted how many trees grew in fenced areas that allowed the smaller ungulate but excluded impala and larger species, and then compared this to tree growth in fenced areas that allowed smaller ungulates and impala, but then excluded all species that were larger than impala. From this, we found that the tree impala preferred to eat grew three times faster in plots that removed impala compared to plots where impala were present. What's the takeaway from all these diverse threads in the study? How do predation, herbivory, and plant protection all interact in this setting? We found that the most dangerous areas for impala have more trees in them, and that impala avoid these dangerous areas. And this is interesting because trees are an important food source for impala. We also found that impala prefer trees without these large thorns, and as a result, the thorny tree species dominated in safe areas, while this less thorny and preferred tree dominated the tree community in more dangerous areas. So what does that mean about the relationship between predators and plants? Herbivores are caught between a rock and a hard place. They must avoid the claws and teeth of their predators and the thorns and noxious chemicals of their food. And plants can have two pathways to success in this landscape. They can either protect themselves from herbivores by growing these large thorns, or they can thrive in areas that are risky to their enemies. And as a result, carnivores and plants combine to make this landscape more diverse by changing where and what herbivores eat. Humans obviously have a big impact on the environment. Just look around yourself right now. What influences could they have on this system, or do they have on this system right now? People are likely to have an influence in this system. For example, we're experiencing a global decline in carnivore species. If this trend continues, our study suggests that the plant community will become increasingly dominated by thorny and well-defended species because herbivores are going to be less fearful of entering into areas where carnivores used to hunt. But unlike many areas of North America and Europe, this landscape is a bit unique because for the most part, humans and wildlife have coexisted for a long time. So perhaps more interesting than how people are influencing carnivores is how carnivores might be influencing people. So this area can experience fairly catastrophic droughts, and these droughts can devastate the livelihoods of communities that are dependent on livestock forage. Our research group would like to know if the trees that impala don't eat in dangerous areas can then be used to supply livestock forage that can help buffer against hard times for these people. So our next step is to learn about the linkages between predators, herbivores, and the livelihoods of people. Adam, thanks so much for talking with me. Great. Thanks, Sarah. It was a pleasure talking to you. Adam Ford and colleagues write about the influence of herbivores and predators on plant distribution in this week's issue. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. 
Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.